Space, the mirror, waits for life to come and look for itself there. These are the words of science fiction author Ray Bradbury, and indeed, a rigorous effort to find signs of extraterrestrial civilization is already being undertaken by astronomers searching for artificial alien radio signals in the cosmos. It is called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Seth Shostak, the senior astronomer for the SETI Institute, predicts that within the next two decades, we will find proof of extraterrestrial life. Data from the Kepler Space Telescope showed us that perhaps 20% of all stars within our own galaxy may have Earth-like exoplanets capable of sustaining organic life. That would amount to not merely millions of planets suitable for life, but billions. And yet, currently, astronomers have found no indisputable proof of any form of life beyond our own planet Earth, let alone evidence of any intelligent technological civilizations in the cosmos. So it seems rather incredible to consider that just over half a century ago, there were high-level government officials from the most powerful nation on Earth who had become convinced not only that intelligent extraterrestrials existed, but that their spaceships were actively visiting the planet Earth. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant, and today we invite you to come with us on another journey through history to better understand the mystery of unidentified flying objects, or UFOs, and why the United States government took such an intense interest in them. We cannot say whether extraterrestrials have ever visited the planet Earth, let alone whether any UFO ever constituted an alien spacecraft, but we can rigorously and objectively examine the historical record to see how the world's most powerful military investigated a confounding enigma in the skies of Earth, and how one brilliant astronomer eventually became convinced that that same enigma was worthy of scientific study. Science fiction writer and futurist Arthur C. Clarke addressed the notion of alien visitation in his novel Rendezvous with Rama. The story takes place in the year 2131, when astronomers detect a strange object in our solar system beyond the orbit of the planet Jupiter, quickly concluding that the object came from outside the solar system. Upon sending a space probe to investigate the object, the scientists in the novel discover that the object is a perfect cylinder, clearly artificial in its construction, an alien spacecraft passing through the Earth's cosmic backyard. It was Irish playwright and poet Oscar Wilde who once said, Life imitates art far more than art imitates life. Oddly enough, for a moment in the year 2017, Rendezvous with Rama seemed shockingly prescient. Late one night, at an astronomical observatory in Hawaii, a nightly scan for near-Earth comets and asteroids picked up the glimmering of a strange object in the universe. Every comet and asteroid humanity had ever observed was in orbit around the Sun. But the speed and movement of this object clearly showed that it was not bound by the Sun's gravity. That it had come from outside the solar system. Categorized initially as an icy comet, the object was named Oumuamua, a Hawaiian word meaning first-time visitor. Yet all comets sprout gaseous tails behind them as they approach our sun. Oumuamua showed no signs of a tail as it approached. Stranger still, the object had a peculiar shape different from that of any comet or asteroid that had ever been observed in human history. Like a giant cigar, the 400-meter-long object was nearly 10 times as long as it was wide, 
Not only that, but it was speeding up, and its acceleration couldn't entirely be accounted for by the sun's gravity. As astronomers struggled to identify Oumuamua, Avi Loeb, the chair of Harvard University's astronomy department, went so far as to suggest that Oumuamua might be a robotic, extraterrestrial space probe. A solar sail that was using the sun's light for propulsion. Despite the fact that most astronomers disagreed with Avi Loeb's outlandish hypothesis, the Green Bank Radio Telescope in West Virginia listened intently for even the faintest hint of radio signals coming from the object. They found nothing. The brownish color of the object was consistent with that of an asteroid, and Oumuamua was reclassified as such. After taking a brief, fleeting pass through our solar system, Oumuamua hurtled away into the cosmic void, traveling at 38 kilometers per second, or 23 miles a second, one of the strangest objects ever observed in the history of modern astronomy. If professional astronomers can be perplexed by objects hurtling through outer space, then perhaps it should come as no surprise that laymen are often perplexed by objects in the skies of our own planet Earth. Today, we know that comets, for instance, are simply large balls of rock and ice in outer space reflecting the sun's light. Yet comets were once so alarming to ancient peoples that they were regarded as harbingers of evil when seen in the night sky. The modern phenomenon of unidentified flying objects and the United States government's interest in them began in the summer of 1947, less than two years prior, the most brutal war in human history had come to a decisive close with the surrender of the Imperial Japanese at the end of World War II. The United States and the Soviet Union, once allies during the war, were beginning to regard each other with a sort of mutual distrust. Space travel, for the human race at least, was still just a fantasy for science fiction authors to explore. Technological advancements were everywhere, though. Humanity had just harnessed the immense power of the atom. Nuclear power promised an unlimited energy source, sure to revolutionize the world, while the atom bomb could mean the end of human civilization. There was reason to be optimistic, though. The Great Depression was over, the American economy was now in recovery, and people transitioned from wartime professions to peacetime ones. This was the world that businessman and search-and-rescue pilot Kenneth Arnold inhabited. In June of 1947, Arnold was flying a single-engine plane over the Cascade Mountains of Washington State when he caught sight of a shimmering light in the corner of his peripheral vision. It was then that he saw several large objects whizzing over the still snow-capped peaks, reflecting sunlight from their mirror-like surfaces. Glancing down at the clock on his instrument panel, then up at the objects again, Arnold watched as the silver disks darted from the peak of Mount Rainier across to Mount Adams. Glancing back at his clock, Arnold was stunned. Based on the time it had taken them to cross the vast distance, he estimated that the objects were traveling at roughly 2,400 kilometers per hour, or about 1,500 miles per hour. Arnold had logged thousands of hours as a pilot, but he had never seen anything quite like the objects he witnessed that day. Sharing his account with his fellow pilots, it wasn't long before local journalists got wind of Arnold's story. When he was asked to describe the objects, he said they moved like a saucer would if it were skipped across the surface of water, and it wasn't long before the term flying saucer began appearing in newspapers. Dozens more sightings of strange objects would be reported from all around the nation in the coming weeks. Some said that Kenneth Arnold's sighting had triggered overactive American imaginations. Others claimed that Arnold's solid reputation made other eyewitnesses feel more comfortable reporting their own sightings without fear of public ridicule. There could be little doubt that many of the sightings were cases of mistaken identity, 
perhaps military aircraft, were shooting stars, while other cases might have been outright fabrications. Some publications mocked Arnold, referring to him derisively as Flash Gordon, a science fiction comic strip character from the 1930s. Ultimately, without any hard evidence, it was difficult to say just what these flying saucers might have been. One month later, in July of 1947, the United States Army publicly announced that they had found hard evidence. The eyes of the nation turned to an obscure rural town in New Mexico. The news came from the home of the 509th Bomb Squadron, the only nuclear bomb squadron on Earth at the time, not far from Los Alamos National Laboratory, the birthplace of the atomic bomb. Lieutenant Walter Haught, the public information officer at the Roswell Army Airfield, issued a press release stating that the military had recovered a flying disc. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange discs had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. Joe Wilson reports to us now from Chicago. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucer. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the discs which landed on a ranch outside Rothwell. Yet almost as soon as the announcement had been made, it was quickly retracted. Brigadier General Roger Ramey declared that no flying saucer had been recovered, merely the wreckage of an ordinary weather balloon. The story quickly died down, at least for the time being. The flying saucer sightings continued, though. In all, 850 UFO sightings were reported in July of 1947 alone. And the military found 150 of those sightings credible enough to send to the Technical Intelligence Division of the Air Force at Wright Field in Ohio. As 1947 came to a close, Lieutenant General Nathan Twinning sent a secret memo to the Pentagon on the subject of so-called flying disks, believing at least some of the reports to be genuine. He pointed out that the UFOs being reported demonstrated extreme rates of climb and maneuverability. The memo stated, quote, The phenomenon being reported is something real, not visionary or fictitious. On a winter afternoon in 1948, the phenomenon went from being real to seemingly deadly. Witnesses in western Kentucky reported seeing an object almost 100 meters in diameter, zipping through the clear skies above them. At Godman Air Force Base near Fort Knox, tower operators, as well as the base commander himself, caught sight of the object. Four Air National Guard fighter aircraft were in the area at the time, and one of the pilots, Captain Thomas Mantell, flew in for a closer look, claiming over the radio that he saw a metallic object of tremendous size. Then radio contact with him was lost. Later that afternoon, Mantell's body was found inside the twisted wreckage of his fighter aircraft, not far from Fort Knox. It was believed that he had flown his aircraft too high and blacked out from lack of oxygen, losing control and plummeting to Earth. By 1948, the issue of so-called flying saucers had simply become too controversial for the United States Air Force to ignore any longer. There were some who thought that perhaps flying saucers could be new, high-tech aircraft from the Soviet Union, violating American airspace. Even if this wasn't the case, the Air Force was tasked with guarding American skies, and the flying saucer hysteria stood to undermine the organization itself. Lieutenant General Nathan Twinning, who had written a memo to the Pentagon about flying saucers months earlier, organized a project codenamed SIGN to collect and analyze UFO reports. The project had initially been called Project Saucer. There were many within the Air Force 
who were proceeding under the assumption that the phenomenon must have a logical, scientific explanation, and they would need a scientist's help to discern one. They found just such a scientist, not far from Wright Field, at Ohio State University. His name was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a professor of astronomy at the school. Hynek and his colleagues scoffed at the notion that flying saucers were alien visitors from other planets, and Hynek himself believed that the general public's fascination with them was merely a passing fad that would soon dissipate in a matter of months. In his high school newspaper, Hynek had once written a fictional story about an old house that was believed to be haunted, but in a surprise twist at the ending, the ghostly specters seen in the house are revealed to be merely the result of a machine built by an elderly scientist to generate electricity. It seems like a fitting metaphor for the investigations Hynek was to conduct for Project Sign, illuminating seemingly extraordinary or supernatural events with scientific analysis. Despite the fact that he was still in his 30s, Hynek had already enjoyed an impressive career. During World War II, he worked at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, helping to invent the proximity fuse, which allowed weapons to detonate their deadly payloads, not upon impact, but when they came within close range of their targets, particularly crucial in atomic bombs. After World War II, Hynek found himself in a consulting job at White Sands Missile Range. German rocket engineer Werner von Braun and his team had recently been brought back to the United States to construct new missiles for the American Army. Von Braun's deadly V-2 rockets, once weapons of war, were now being used to launch scientific instruments, to skim the edge of space and take measurements outside the Earth's atmosphere was the first astronomy conducted at the edge of space. Hynek's collaboration with the Air Force in Project Sign might not have been nearly as exciting as his previous work, but it would be another noteworthy item on his resume. So he accepted the Air Force's invitation and went to work. As a professor of astronomy, he found about 80% of the supposed flying saucer sightings to simply be cases of mistaken identity. In one case, a weather observer had sighted a glowing orb in the night sky, with a small tail behind it. Hynek concluded it was almost certainly a comet. Comet 1948L, discovered just a few days prior. Even the case of the unfortunate Thomas Mantell had been explained away. Mantell had not been looking at a flying saucer but rather, the planet Venus. Apart from the sun and the moon, Venus is typically the brightest object in the night sky, and can even be visible in the early evening hours prior to sunset. Actually, placing blame on the planet Venus was initially a conclusion drawn by the U.S. Air Force. Hynek simply provided the science to back it up. In the summer of 1948, though, Project Sign would receive one of the most outlandish and shocking reports that they had seen yet. And it would come from two trained, experienced pilots. An Eastern Airlines DC-3 aircraft was flying over the state of Alabama sometime after 2 a.m. under a clear, moonlit sky. Inside the dimly lit cockpit was a captain named Childs and his co-pilot, a man named Witted, off ahead of them in the darkness, the two men saw a faint red light. Captain Childs remarked it was probably a new military jet. Just a few seconds later, though, the object veered slightly to the left. It seemed to be going much faster than the men had originally thought, and it quickly became clear that the object was not a jet. Passing less than a hundred feet from their right wing, they saw a long, cigar-shaped cylinder spitting bright red flames out the back. Pulling into a steep climb, the object shot upwards, disappearing into a cloud bank above them. With their hands tightly gripping the controls, the two men were speechless, stunned and shocked by what they had seen. Whatever it was, both men claimed to have gotten a clear look 
It was a cylindrical object that had no wings whatsoever, and two rows of bright red windows, glowing like burning road flares. Captain Childs gave a rough estimate that the object had been traveling at over 1,100 kilometers per hour, or about 700 miles an hour. Most of the passengers on the aircraft had been asleep, but one passenger, named McKelvey, seated on the right-hand side of the plane, claimed to have seen a bright flash of light rushing past the aircraft, though he hadn't gotten a good look at it. This was the account given to Project Sign by two men who were not only trained pilots, but had served as Air Force officers during World War II. More astounding still, an hour before the incident involving the DC-3 passenger aircraft, a ground crewman at Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia had also spotted something in the sky. The man's name was Massey, and he claimed to have seen a cylindrical object flying a few thousand feet above him in the air, spitting flames out of its tail. And Massey was likely an even more credible witness than the pilots on the DC-3. Not only had Massey seen jet aircraft in flight, but rockets also. In 1944, during World War II, he had witnessed the launch of a German V-2 rocket. He admitted that the craft he had seen that night in 1948 resembled a V-2 in some ways, but he said it was much larger and traveling much faster. Pilots Childs and Witted later stated that they had both seen meteors entering the Earth's atmosphere while flying, and this was no meteor. Hynek wrote a long analysis of the case, where he admitted that if Childs and Witted were indeed correct in their recollections of the incident, then there was no astronomical explanation. In Hynek's analysis, he stated that there were really only two possibilities. Either the witnesses had indeed seen a very bizarre type of aircraft, or perhaps the object was a fireball. Occasionally, flaming meteors streaking through the Earth's atmosphere can flare up and briefly shine brighter than the planet Venus in the night sky. Such meteors are known as fireballs. But of course, such meteors don't have windows on their sides, they aren't shaped like cylinders, and they don't lurch upward into the sky. Hynek suggested that the eyewitnesses' memories had been faulty somehow, and perhaps a psychiatrist could offer a better explanation. In the end, Project Sign classified the case as unknown. Even with Hynek's help, there were still several other cases that Project Sign could not explain. Sightings by pilots, scientists, or engineers. But this most recent one was the most confounding of all. So-called flying saucers were now commonplace in the media, and multiple newspapers had reported the accounts of pilots Childs and Witted, including the bizarre rocket craft that they claimed to have seen. One publication described it as, quote, a wingless sky monster. The Air Force knew it had to more adequately address the subject of unidentified flying objects, so an unofficial estimate of the situation, classified as top secret, was written by the Air Technical Intelligence Center. General George C. Kennedy, the head of Strategic Air Command, said that the United States military had no aircraft that resembled the one described by the witnesses. There was no evidence either that the Soviet Union had any such craft. From a standpoint of aerodynamics and physics, a rocket craft like the one described by the witnesses could indeed fly. But from a standpoint of engineering, it was beyond the technical capabilities of human beings. So the estimate of the situation concluded that at least some UFO sightings were, in fact, extraterrestrial vehicles. Surprisingly, members of the Air Force at the highest levels did little to dispute the document's conclusions, but when it reached the desk of Air Force Chief of Staff Hoyt Vandenberg, all of that changed. Vandenberg refused to accept such an explanation, especially considering that, ultimately, there was no proof to support the extraterrestrial hypothesis, only a number of very credible eyewitness accounts. The document was relegated to the incinerator, and all copies were destroyed. 
those who supported the extraterrestrial hypothesis were reassigned. To this day, the Air Force denies that the document ever existed, but several Air Force officers on active duty in 1948 claim to have seen it, including Air Force Captain Edward Rappelt from the Air Technical Intelligence Center where the document originated. When the Air Force grew to resent the term flying saucer, it was Rappelt who coined the term unidentified flying object, or UFO. Years later, Heineck himself stated that the estimate of the situation document was very real indeed. Project Sign had failed to calm the flying saucer hysteria, struggled to debunk multiple puzzling cases, and stories in the media about Air Force investigations made the project less than discreet. In 1949, the project was canceled. Heineck happily returned to teaching astronomy at Ohio State University, and through fundraising, he managed to secure a very generous donation for a new planetarium on campus. And yet, the Air Force continued to receive dozens of UFO reports with each passing month. So the remainder of Project Sign's budget was devoted to a different project that would focus on convincing the American public that UFOs posed no threat to national security and that all sightings could easily be explained away. It would be called Project Grudge. Hynek's report on the bizarre rocket craft was edited and revised. This time, it was not merely labeled as a fireball, but as an obvious fireball. In a particularly opinionated and sarcastic editorial, the Saturday Evening Post suggested that all supposed flying saucer sightings were obvious cases of mistaken identity, as well as hoaxes. The Air Force cooperated enthusiastically with the magazine's editorial board. A mere six months after Project Grudge began, though, it came to an end. Even with its more aggressive approach to debunking, there were UFO sightings that seemed to defy any clear explanation. Out of the 244 sightings Project Grudge examined, 56 remained unexplained, so the cases were dismissed as hallucinations or psychological aberrations. In 1950, a columnist for Variety named Frank Scully published a book entitled Behind the Flying Saucers, stating that in 1947 and 1948, the U.S. government had salvaged three separate flying saucers in the American Southwest, along with the bodies of their occupants. Scully claimed his sources had impeccable scientific credentials and had been vetted thoroughly. Despite the success of the best-selling book, the claims within it held little weight. Mr. Scully's thoroughly vetted sources turned out to be two conmen from the American West, who had made their living selling fake devices that they claimed could detect the presence of crude oil underground. The men had no scientific credentials. Scully's sources were frauds, plain and simple. It was, perhaps the first time, though, that tales of crashed saucers and alien bodies would emerge after the 1947 headline from Roswell. On a late summer evening in 1951, a group of college professors in Lubbock, Texas, sighted a formation of blue lights flying at high speeds across the night sky. They hadn't gotten a very good look at the objects, but strangely enough, an hour later, the lights returned. Dozens of witnesses in Lubbock saw the lights that night, and about 20 minutes before the sightings began, a married couple in New Mexico claimed to have seen a similar formation flying overhead, moving east towards the state of Texas. The following day, an Air Defense Command radar station reported that they had registered a contact at about 13,000 feet, traveling at 1,400 kilometers per hour, or about 900 miles per hour, faster than any jet aircraft known to be in service at that time. A few days later, the sightings began again. This time, a freshman student at Texas Technical College had a 35-millimeter camera nearby and managed to capture five photographs of the strange lights. Upon request, he gave the photographic negatives to the Air Force. They found no evidence of photographic retouching or tampering. 
witnessed by well over a hundred people in all, the sightings would become known as the Lubbock Lights. When the sightings made the newspapers, an astrophysics professor from Harvard University named Donald Menzel claimed that the Lubbock Lights had merely been light from car headlights and street lamps, reflecting off of a layer of atmospheric haze. In 1952, Life magazine wrote an article on UFOs that received the cooperation of the Air Force with the controversial title, The Case for Interplanetary Saucers. In addition to detailed descriptions of multiple UFO sightings, there was an interview with Walter Rydell, a German rocket scientist who had worked under Werner von Braun. Rydell stated that he believed UFOs were extraterrestrial visitors. Alas, the extraterrestrial hypothesis just wouldn't die. Captain Edward Repelt would later state that the Air Force was dissatisfied with the results of Project Grudge and Project Sign. Public interest in UFOs had not been quelled, and they had not been explained away. The New York Times reported that so many UFO reports were flooding into the U.S. government that routine intelligence work was starting to become effective. For that reason, Project Blue Book was founded. The name came from the blue test booklets students at major universities received in the 1950s, implying that the rigorous investigation of UFOs was just as important as a final exam at a university. Repelt was placed in charge of the project. What would happen next caught everyone by surprise, and was perhaps the biggest embarrassment for the Air Force yet. On a summer night in July of 1952, at Washington, D.C.'s National Airport, not far from the White House, air traffic controllers picked up seven slow-moving objects on radar, traveling only about 160 kilometers per hour, or 100 miles per hour. At nearby Andrews Air Force Base, radar operators saw blips on their radar also. One of the controllers claimed to have seen an orange glowing orb outside of his tower window. Then, the objects appeared to race away at incredible speeds. A commercial pilot flying over the state of Virginia claimed he saw six bright lights in the air that night. When the objects on radar began closing in on the White House air traffic controllers suddenly became alarmed. Air Defense Command was notified, and two jet fighters were scrambled immediately. Yet as the jet interceptors closed in on the location of the objects, the UFOs disappeared from radar. By morning the next day, there was no sign of the mysterious objects. Repelt found out about the radar contacts days later, while reading a newspaper. He caught the next flight out to Washington, D.C., in the hopes of interviewing air traffic controllers. But when he arrived, he was denied the use of any government vehicles, or even cab fare. Finally, he was threatened with being reported AWOL, absent without official leave, if he didn't immediately return to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So he left, without interviewing a single witness. Perhaps it was hoped that the excitement would die down, and that the affairs of the nation's capital would return to normal. But just one week later, it happened again. D.C. National Airport and Andrews Air Force Base both confirmed that the objects were back. Yet again, two F-94 jets were scrambled and found nothing. The radar blips vanished once again. Finally, though, one of the pilots caught sight of multiple bright lights in the skies over the capital. Even at maximum speed in his F-94, the fighter pilot would later admit that he had no closing speed and resigned himself to abandoning the chase when he realized that he could never catch up to the objects. The next morning, President Harry Truman demanded that one of his aides find some answers to just what had been going on in the nation's capital that night. One newspaper ran a headline that stated, quote, Saucers swarm over capital. Some UFO enthusiasts view sightings that are confirmed by radar as almost unimpeachable, 
but radar returns are far from perfect. Sometimes, a layer of warm air in the Earth's atmosphere can trap cooler air beneath it. As a result, radar signals can bounce off this layer of air, falsely showing objects on the ground as if they were at high altitudes in the atmosphere. Of course, though, while the apparitions are visible on radar, they do not appear as visible lights in the night sky. And many radar operators, including some at Andrews Air Force Base, claimed that they had been trained to spot temperature inversions, and had seen them multiple times before, and that the objects they had seen that night on radar were not temperature inversions, but a solid aircraft of some sort. Without allowing Project Blue Book to conduct an investigation, Major General John Samford, the Director of Air Force Intelligence, called a press conference to declare that all the excitement was caused by mere temperature inversions. It would be the longest press conference the military had participated in since World War II, and despite his confidence in the temperature inversion theory in the case of the DC UFOs, Samford knew that he had to address the broader UFO phenomenon as a whole. On that subject, this is what he had to say. We have received and analyzed between one and 2,000 reports that have come to us from all kinds of sources. Of this great mass of reports, we have been able adequately to explain the great bulk of them, explain them to our own satisfaction. However, there have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we now are attempting to resolve. Our basic difficulty in dealing with these is that there is no measurement of them that makes it possible for us to put them in any pattern that would be profitable for a deliberate, uh, custom sort of analysis to take the next step. We have, as of date, come to only one firm conclusion with respect to this remaining percentage, and that is that it does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency that we can relate with any, to any conceivable threat to the United States. According to the New York Times, though, Samford would later offer a briefing to the FBI where he privately conceded that it was not entirely impossible that some UFOs might be ships from another planet. The United States is not the only nation on Earth to conduct investigations into UFOs. Nick Pope, a journalist who once ran an investigation unit for the British Ministry of Defense, said this about the Washington, D.C. UFO sightings. Quote, it's not a situation where authorities conspired to keep some terrible truth about UFOs from the people, but rather the government doing its best to keep people from realizing that they didn't have all the answers. By 1953, there was legitimate concern on the part of the U.S. Air Force and the CIA that communications channels for vital national defense purposes were becoming clogged by hundreds of UFO reports. CIA analysts monitored the Soviet press from 1947 to 1952 and found virtually no mention of UFO sightings over the Soviet Union. Was the Soviet government censoring such information from their own press? Or was there still a possibility that UFOs might actually be Soviet aircraft in U.S. airspace? In the United States intelligence community, some were concerned that the Soviet Union might use a wave of UFO sightings as cover for a military attack on the United States. After the CIA reviewed documents from Project Blue Book, the Intelligence Advisory Committee recommended the formation of a scientific panel. It would be chaired by physicist H.P. Robertson and include one member of the Manhattan Project that had developed the atomic bomb, as well as other prestigious scientists. Over a three-day period, the panel examined 75 separate UFO reports. But they examined only eight of them in any close detail. In all, the panel spent a cumulative 12 hours in all weighing the UFO phenomenon. For someone like Hynek, it seemed like very little time at all. The Robertson panel then concluded 
that while UFO sightings themselves posed no threat to national security, UFO reports certainly did. They suggested that Project Blue Book spend less time investigating UFO reports and far more time debunking them to assuage public fears and anxieties. By the summer of 1953, most UFO reports were classified. An unauthorized release of information was labeled a crime under the Espionage Act. The act was a relic from World War I, designed to reduce dissension and military insubordination during wartime. Blue Book would become less an investigative organization and more a repository of records, a dead end for UFO sightings, a black hole for them to be concealed inside of. The CIA recommended a policy of debunking that would be accomplished not only by military and intelligence agencies, but through films, television, and articles in popular publications. Civilian UFO organizations were being formed now by curious citizens hoping to investigate such sightings. The CIA recommended that those organizations be placed under surveillance for fear that they might be used for, quote, subversive purposes. Gordon Cooper was one of America's first pioneering astronauts and orbited the Earth in Project Mercury. Not only did he claim to have once seen a UFO himself, but he asserted that the U.S. government simply lied to the American public about UFOs. He once said, quote, They were worried that it would panic the public if they knew that somebody had vehicles with this kind of performance right after World War II. So they started telling lies about it. While going through old UFO files, Rappelt found that he had some misgivings about Hynek's explanation of the fatal Thomas Mantell case, and he met with Hynek to review his notes. A brilliant astronomer who was detail-oriented by nature, Hynek knew he had been correct about the location of the planet Venus in the sky during the incident, but it would have been only a few times brighter than the daytime atmosphere around it. Taking Rappelt by surprise, Hynek apologized admitting that he had likely been wrong about the entire case. Whatever Mantell had been chasing in the sky that day, it probably wasn't the planet Venus. The planet simply wouldn't have been bright enough. Rappelt began to wonder if Mantell might have been chasing a silver high-altitude balloon from the Navy's Project Skyhook. With Hynek recanting now, the balloon explanation at least made more sense. Heineck was gradually beginning to wonder if his rigorous scientific skepticism had blinded him to the reality of UFOs. Very quietly, he privately visited eight separate astronomical observatories, discreetly polling his colleagues to gauge their feelings about UFOs. Some astronomers were indeed downright hostile to the subject, but they were in the minority. A full 41% of astronomers Heineck spoke with expressed interest in UFOs, and offered to help Hynek with future investigations. And 36% said that UFOs were an issue that was far more serious than the general public realized. Even so, Hynek did not want UFOs to define his career as an astronomer. In preparation for the International Geophysical Year, the United States was planning to launch an artificial satellite into orbit around the Earth. Even if it were traveling at 18,000 miles per hour in outer space, if the satellite had a white or highly reflective surface, it would likely be visible from the Earth. Hynek was approached to organize an optical tracking program to watch the skies. Not for UFOs, but for the satellite, once it was launched. He collaborated with a group called Moonwatch, a private organization of literally thousands of amateur astronomers all around the world. Moonwatch would help Hynek and his colleagues scan the sky. The optical tracking program would be run from the Smithsonian's Astrophysical Observatory in Massachusetts. The assistant director of the observatory was none other than Professor Donald Menzel, the man who had dismissed the Lubbock lights as mere atmospheric haze a few years earlier. On a Friday evening in October of 1957, Heineck received a phone call while he was at Harvard University. A trembling voice on the other end said, quote, They've done it. They've really done it. The Russians put a satellite up 
it was a shocking piece of news. The space age had begun in earnest, and the Harvard campus was suddenly overrun with students, reporters, and concerned citizens. Heineck was at the center of it all, and a few days later, his Moonwatch team caught the first glimpse of the Soviet satellite Sputnik from Sydney, Australia. With the dawn of the space age, UFO sightings continued. Not far from Sydney, Australia, on the tropical island of Papua New Guinea, some UFO sightings were initially dismissed as sightings of Sputnik. But an American missionary claimed that there was something quite different going on. He and more than 35 witnesses claimed to have seen a glowing, flying disc with four landing legs and multiple creatures standing on the roof of the craft, looking down and watching them. The alleged sighting lasted over half an hour. Then there was the case of Betty and Barney Hill, two middle-class civil servants who claimed that, with the help of a psychiatrist, they were able to recall the experience of being taken aboard a large flying saucer and subjected to invasive medical experiments by humanoid creatures from the Zeta Reticuli star system. Friends said Barney Hill had once laughed at the idea of UFOs, but now he was laughing no more. When they awoke after the experience, the Hill's watches had stopped ticking and their clothing was ripped, the only evidence of their otherworldly encounter. Were the couple mentally ill, liars, or legitimate witnesses to alien contact? No one could really be sure. Heineck was, naturally, skeptical about the more outlandish cases, but he remained a consultant for Project Blue Book, a project that had recently come under new management by a man named Hector Quintanilla. And there was a new case that proved especially vexing for Quintanilla, so he sent Heineck out to investigate. Once again, the setting for the otherworldly encounter was the state of New Mexico. A police officer named Lonnie Zamora claimed to have seen a egg-shaped craft with large landing legs perched on the rugged desert terrain by the side of the road. And close beside it, there were two figures in bulky white flight suits. Zamora claimed that he watched as the two figures climbed into the craft and with a roar of fire, the object rose into the evening sky, kicking up dust around it. It left physical evidence, too. Shortly afterwards, a New Mexico state trooper named M.S. Chavez arrived on the scene. Chavez found that the sandy desert floor was scorched black, and there were several pieces of brush that were still on fire. There were also four square indentations on the earth, precisely where Zamora claimed the craft's landing legs had been. Heineck found Zamora to be frank, direct, and straightforward in his manner of speech. Despite his outlandish account, Zamora seemed oddly credible. He was a man who didn't even drink alcohol. Since the area wasn't far from White Sands Missile Range, Quintanilla, now Hynek's boss, suggested that the craft might have been a prototype moonlander designed by NASA or the Air Force. The White Sands made it very clear that they had no such craft. Stranger still, White Sands said that they had captured no strange objects on radar that night. Heineck left New Mexico more confused than when he had first arrived. Much to Quintanilla's frustration, the case was ultimately labeled unidentified in Blue Book's files. Heineck was now beginning to resent the Air Force's hostility to the study of UFOs. In one letter to an Air Force official, Heineck said, quote, I need only remind you, less than two centuries ago, the entire province of meteorites was kept out of legitimate astronomy because stories of stones that fell from the sky were regarded as old wives' tales. Had these accounts been given more careful attention by scientists, the branch of astronomy, which we now know as meteorics, would have been born well over a century earlier. 
Hynek's passion for astronomy still outweighed his curiosity about UFOs, though. His relationship with the Air Force was further strained by their termination of Project Stargazer, an effort to use weather balloons to launch high-altitude telescopes to get a more clear view of the night sky. Hynek called the cancellation of the project a crime against science. One Project Blue Book investigation would determine the course of Hynek's professional career and his ultimate place in history more than any other. It took place in Michigan during the spring of 1966 at Hillsdale College. Its witnesses included 87 students, a local civil defense contractor, and a college dean. They claimed that a glowing, football-shaped object had appeared in the evening skies. It seemed to move towards the student dormitory. Then it stopped suddenly, hovering in the air above. Countless newspapers had reported the story. Quintanilla was quick to send Hynek to investigate. Apparently, some very high-ranking officials at the Pentagon were angry and were pressing Quintanilla to resolve the case quickly and quietly. When Hynek traveled to Michigan, he was already weary about the prospects for the case. Despite the large number of witnesses, there were no photographs and little evidence of any kind for what they had seen. Bud Van Horn, the civil defense contractor who had seen the UFOs near a swamp in the area, claimed that he initially thought they were marsh lights, but decided they didn't quite seem to behave like regular marsh lights. Sometimes called jack-o'-lanterns or simply orbs, such marsh lights can appear when decaying vegetation in swamps and wetlands releases gases that oxidize in the air, giving off an eerie glow that can sometimes be seen at night. But the pattern and movement of the objects that the witnesses described seemed far more elaborate than simple marsh lights. Hynek was stumped in his investigation, but while talking on the phone with Quintanilla, he was told, in no uncertain terms, that there would be a press conference the following day, and he would be expected to make a public appearance with an explanation in hand. Hynek would later say that the atmosphere in Michigan had devolved into a media circus. Rumors of an impending Air Force cover-up were in the air. Television reporters were swarming the area looking for answers, and locals were practically hysterical. That night, Hynek had watched as local police raced around in their squad cars, chasing a mysterious light that they said was moving. When they climbed out of their cars, pointing at the night sky and shouting, Hynek realized that the deputies were looking at the star Arcturus, a red point of light not far from the constellation Ursa Major, and it was most certainly not moving. Then came the obligatory press conference. Under immense pressure from the Air Force, with television cameras and angry locals surrounding him, Hynek proposed that the sightings that took place in close proximity to the marsh might well have been swamp gas oxidizing in the air. But he was careful to qualify his statement, saying that he couldn't prove it in a court of law. No one paid attention to Hynek's nuanced analysis. The narrative that emerged in the press was that Hynek was suggesting a few ignorant hicks had been whipped into near hysterics by mere swamp gas. It was the low point of Hynek's career. He was now being criticized as a government shill who would say literally anything to dismiss and explain away UFO sightings. For all of his resentment of the U.S. Air Force, Hynek also blamed himself. He had spent well over a decade debunking UFOs, despite the fact that he was certain several cases couldn't be dismissed with conventional explanations. Now, angry constituents in Michigan had been calling and writing to their congressional representatives, demanding answers. A powerful Republican congressman and future president named Gerald Ford was especially irritated by Hynek's dismissive attitude towards the citizens of his state. Ford said, quote, The American public deserves a better explanation than the one given thus far by the Air Force. In response to Ford's declaration 
for the first time in history, the House Armed Services Committee scheduled an open hearing on the subject of UFOs. That year, the number of UFO sightings in the United States had reached its peak, with well over a thousand reported in just a few months. During the congressional hearing, when asked about UFOs that had been caught on radar in the past, Quintanilla testified that there were no radar cases that were unexplained. It was a disingenuous response at best. The Secretary of the Air Force also testified, boasting that since 1947, thousands of UFO sightings had been explained as stars, comets, and meteors. Which was, after all, technically true. It was all just too much for Heineck. When it came time for him to testify, he spoke his mind. Heineck told the House Armed Services Committee that UFOs were worthy of scientific study. Quintanilla was furious. He hadn't authorized Heineck to make any such statement that day. Shortly thereafter, Heineck published a letter in the prestigious journal Science, where he argued that the UFO phenomenon warranted a serious, detailed, scientific investigation. He went on to write a book entitled The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry, where he said that UFO reports could be classified into, quote, close encounters, encounters of the first, second, and third kind, respectively. Encounters of the first kind were mere visual UFO sightings. Encounters of the second kind involved physical evidence left behind after the sighting or physical effects on the individuals involved. Encounters of the third kind involved sightings of the actual occupants of the UFO. The final classification would become the basis of Steven Spielberg's blockbuster film of the same name, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Heineck himself would make a cameo appearance on screen. Some UFO encounters by the United States military would indeed be far too close for comfort. At Loring Air Force Base in Maine, alarms sounded and the entire base was placed on high alert as a red flying orb crossed into the base's restricted airspace, flying at a very low altitude. At the same time, the base picked up on radar the image of a mysterious object some 10 miles northeast of the base. Thinking it was an aircraft, they attempted to contact it on radio, but they received no response. The UFO circled a storage area containing nuclear warheads, while military police scoured the base for any intruders. They found none. Then the red orb vanished, both visually and from radar. The following night, base security observed a strange, flashing white light just north of the base for over half an hour. The light made no sound, but it too appeared on radar. Then it darted away towards the Canadian border. In a similar incident at Malmstrom Air Force Base in 1967, another glowing red orb was observed hovering above the base. According to government reports, multiple intercontinental ballistic missiles were suddenly disabled, all of them shutting down simultaneously and going offline as the UFO hovered above. In the 1970s, physicist and author Stanton Friedman traveled to Roswell, New Mexico to interview 62 different locals about the supposed flying saucer crash of 1947. All of them would claim that there was far more going on than the army had been willing to admit, but that they had been threatened with federal prison if they spoke out. Many of them said that an extraterrestrial spacecraft had indeed crashed in the New Mexico desert that summer. Some even claimed that there were small alien bodies that were recovered after the crash. The local coroner claimed to have received a mysterious phone call that summer requesting four child-sized coffins that could be hermetically sealed. Particularly compelling was the account of Major Jesse Marcel, who transported the mysterious debris from New Mexico 
to a base in Fort Worth, Texas. Speaking about the strange debris, Marcel said the following, quote, It felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the thing about it that got me was that you couldn't even bend it. You couldn't even dent it. Even a sledgehammer would bounce right off it. I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. It was not anything from this earth. That I'm quite sure of. Being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about all the materials used in aircraft and air travel. All I could do was keep my mouth shut, and General Ramey was the one who told the newsmen what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather balloon. Of course, we both knew differently. Lieutenant Walter Hawk, the public information officer who originally told of the flying disc, wrote a sealed affidavit that was released only after his death. In the statement, Hawk claimed that no one could have mistaken the crash debris for a weather balloon. He stated that an alien spacecraft had indeed been recovered from the desert and that there were multiple alien bodies. The creatures were humanoid, about four feet tall, with large bulbous heads. In 1994, the Air Force released a 1,000-page report stating that the balloon recovered from the desert outside of Roswell in 1947 was actually part of a classified project designed to monitor the upper atmosphere for Soviet nuclear tests. In 2012, Annie Jacobs, an editor of Los Angeles Times Magazine, published the book Area 51 on the controversial U.S. military installation. In her book, she asserts that the Roswell crash was neither an alien spacecraft nor a secret balloon. Jacobs claims that the craft was an experimental flying machine, unlike any aircraft ever built, constructed in the Soviet Union, designed to violate American airspace and frighten the United States military establishment. She alleged that a thoroughly vetted but unnamed source who worked on the Manhattan Project, shared this stunning revelation with her. Jacobs also stated, quite correctly, that a large number of UFO reports in the 1950s were U-2 spy planes, then secret military aircraft with wingspans shaped like boomerangs, flying at incredibly high altitudes. The late astronomer Carl Sagan was always intellectually hostile to the notion that UFOs were extraterrestrial in origin. He said that if the Earth was just one of millions of planets that contained life, then there would be no reason for extraterrestrials to make frequent visits here. On the other hand, if life in the universe were extremely rare and Earth were special, we would have very few neighbors nearby, and thus very few visitors. It is sometimes called Sagan's Paradox. And so our journey into the past comes to an end today at Universe University. Project Blue Book was terminated indefinitely in 1969. The Air Force publicly declared that no UFO had ever been a threat to national security, and there was no evidence that UFOs were extraterrestrial visitors. Out of the over 12,000 cases investigated by Project Blue Book, 701 remain unexplained to this very day. Hynek died in 1986. His fascination with UFOs had made him an international celebrity, but it came at a price. All mainstream astronomers and major universities shunned him as an academic and intellectual pariah. He was no longer seen as a respectable scientist, but as an eccentric fool practicing pseudoscience. The U.S. Air Force maintains its interest in UFOs, though, and in 2007, they committed $22 million to their Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program to study unidentified flying objects in American airspace. Air Force Instruction 10-206 
offers clear procedures for reporting and investigating UFOs, and the document is routinely updated. The UFO enigma endures, and it is as expansive and mysterious as the human imagination itself. For us, as members of the general public, there is, as of yet, no indisputable proof of extraterrestrial visitation. In a story by Arthur C. Clarke titled The Sentinel, the main character discovers an alien artifact on the moon, changing human history forever. Staring up at the stars, the protagonist reflects upon the discovery, saying, quote, I can never look now at the Milky Way without wondering from which of those banked clouds the emissaries are coming. I do not think I will have to wait for very long.